Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, we humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, we will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nations and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when they're dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Christmas is coming. Can you believe it? It's right around the corner. I find this, I don't know if it's the sort of thing people say when they're getting older. I can't believe how quickly the year goes. Can you? Some of you can't? It's December. I mean, my word. Almost on cue, this morning there was frost. Beautiful. Now, in the historic Christian calendar, this season is called Advent, coming, Jesus coming into the world. And we're taking a break during Advent from our sermon series on the life of David. And during December, we're going to focus in on the birth of Jesus Christ, and particularly this year on the theme of peace. Peace. It's one of the great themes of Christmas. The infant Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh, come to bring peace on earth. And this, uh, just a few moments ago, Laura read one of the most famous Christian passages, Christmas passages, Isaiah 9, rightly famous, written sometime during the 8th century before Jesus. It predicts the birth of a child. But this, as you can tell, is no ordinary child. And this passage, as we delve into it, is going to help us understand Jesus and what Christmas is all about. And I've tried to summarize its teaching today with three headings that I hope uh, might help it to stick. A picture of peace, the prince of peace, and the price of peace. Picture, prince, and price of peace. Firstly, a picture of peace, verse 1 to 5. Now, in December 1969... Uh, the, 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 1969 had the summer of love and later that year in December John Lennon and Yoko Ono John Lennon the Beatle rented huge billboards in 12 world cities 12 global cities and they paid for these posters to be put up all around the world and the posters said this war is over if you want it happy Christmas from John and Yoko war is over if you want it. And they then released a song called Happy Christmas, War Is Over. Now, were they right? Of course not. 1969, 
war wasn't over, nor is it now. International conflicts, national conflicts, tribal battles, wars still rage. Then there are the kind of wars that we're all engaged in from time to time. Family strife, marital wars, sibling rivalry, interpersonal conflict. Human beings seem born to fight, don't we? So let's not be silly. I'm saying war is over. But just as we're about to dismiss John and Yoko's song as the dream of some rich hippies, we find that the Bible gives us a problem. Have a look in uh, Isaiah chapter 9. We find here that the prophet Isaiah seems to be saying here that war is over. And he gives this picture of peace, verse 1 and 2. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And then he speaks in the past tense. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. There'll be no more gloom. Now, Isaiah's book is a book full of despair and tragedy and hope and for the future, all mixed in together. It's an amazing collection of prophecies. Isaiah has been warning the people that they've got to turn back to God. And in chapters 7 and 8 of his book, he's been warning particularly the king, king called Ahaz, that you must not trust in alliances with other kings and in the, world, the ways of the world around to, to rescue you. You must trust in God alone. But Ahaz didn't do that. He was very wicked. And so at the end of chapter 8, Isaiah concludes with these words. Chapter 8, verse 21. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upwards, they will curse their king and their God. These are people in a very bad way. Verse 22. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now that is an image of people lost and hopeless. The total absence of light in absolute misery. But then in verse, chapter 9 verse 2 we have this incredible reversal. A light they see a great light, a light shines on them. A beautiful light comes in and dispels the darkness. Now, in the Bible, light is an image for life. And we know, don't we, that those of us who've done even elementary schooling, that you need light for life to exist, don't you? We really need it. A few years ago, there was an article in Popular Science magazine describing what would happen if the sun went out. Without the sun, the temperature of the earth would drop to minus 100 degrees within a year. Photosynthesis would stop immediately. Most plants and animals would die within a few weeks. And then, over time, the oceans would freeze over. What about human beings? The article said this, humans could live in submarines in the deepest and warmest parts of the ocean, but a more attractive option might be nuclear or geothermal powered habitats. One good place to camp out, Iceland. Now, that's what happens when light is removed. Life ceases. But in this image, this image of peace, 
light comes back, light, light shines in the darkness. And in verse 3, we get some other images of peace. It says here that the nation is increasing. Uh, verse 3, talking to God, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. The nation here is increasing. It's been depopulated by war and by forced exile, but now it's flourishing. It's coming alive again. People are happy. They rejoice like farmers do at the harvest time. Working hard, yes, but now enjoying the fruits of their labor. They rejoice like soldiers who've, who've worked hard, striven, fought for a victory, for peace, and now they can divide the plunder and the spoils. There's food to eat. There's the riches of a victorious campaign. Now there can be rest. Now there can be life again. Light, growth, abundance, prosperity. This is a picture of peace. But we have to ask what Isaiah is talking about here. Because at the time he was writing, his own country was being crushed by a superpower called Assyria. They were the, uh, the kind of world power of the 8th century. They were coming from the east and sweeping through and clearing every nation before them. Starting up north, that's where the reference to Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee of the nations, that's always where they came in, from the top of the Fertile Crescent and swept through Israel. And we know from the history of, of that time, obviously, that war has continued to rage then and in the last hundreds of years. So is my Isaiah mistaken? Is he indulging in sentimental hopes? Well, he is a prophet, and he speaks a message that God gave him. And such messages sometimes talk about the future as if it has already happened. That's what he's doing here. The prophets use a, a particular tense in the Hebrew language. They call it the prophetic perfect. It's a past tense to describe predictions of the future. And they do this as a way of saying, what I'm about to tell you is so certain that we may as well speak as if it's already taken place. Now, how could these prophets be so confident because they spoke the word of the living God, and therefore it is bound to happen. Mere humans can't make predictions with any degree of confidence. None of us knows what's around the corner. None of us knows what's really going to happen this afternoon. We hope we're going to have a pop-up nativity. We don't know. Only God does. And sometimes God pulls back the curtain of history and gives us a glimpse of his future. And that's what's going on here. Isaiah can say war is over with complete certainty because God has told him that it is the picture of peace that is coming, and it's certain. And God says it will happen because of the prince of peace. Here's the flow of the argument. Verse 1 and 2, there's no more gloom. There's light shining on those in darkness. Verse 3, the nation is really joyful, like those uh, harvesting or those dividing the spoils. And then in verse 4, we have a, a logic word, the word for. Look back, remember the time when we were oppressed by Midian? It was a terrible time. We were crushed. We saw there was no hope. And then God raised up an unlikely hero, a guy called Gideon. And God took Gideon and his few hundred men and led them into a conflict that they were apparently going to lose. But God turned the tables in a remarkable way, and Gideon and 300 guys won the great victory, and we were free again. 
He says, look back to what God did in the time of Midian when the yoke that was burdening us, the, thing, the, the, the weight of the oppressor, and the bar across our shoulders and the rod of the oppressor, it's a picture of slavery. It's all broken and we're set free, to, free again. For God, as in the, the day of Midian's defeat, God has shattered the yoke. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet, but he speaks as if it has. And then there's another use of this word for. It's, that doesn't appear in our translation, but some of you may have it in your English translation. Verse 5, for every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for the burning. It's basically saying, uh, this picture of peace, armed conflict will so much be a thing of the past that you can burn your military equipment, your fighting boots and cloaks and weapons. You can just burn them. You'll never need them again. Such will be the peace that will never end. And how will peace come to this war-torn world? Verse 6, the third of these fours. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. World peace will not be achieved by a convention of leaders holding talks. World peace will not be achieved by the formation of a multinational agency. Much as those things are good and attempts, they never work forever. War will be over, according to Isaiah, because of a child, an image of weakness. This child, it says, will be a son given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. That means he will shoulder the responsibility for leadership. He will bear rule. He will carry global leadership. Now, notice the shoulders. Back in verse 4, they had a bar across their shoulders. They're, they're burdened like a beast of burden. And then they're released from burdens when the child shoulders the burden of rule. This child has got really big shoulders. Now Isaiah doesn't have a photo ID. He probably wished he did. He doesn't know exactly when this is going to happen, but he does know what the child will be called. Now back in chapter 7, a couple of chapters before, he'd said that the child will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And here he shares four titles of this child. Four titles that he will have, and they are absolutely amazing. And we'll spend a couple of minutes in them, just so we can see Jesus afresh again. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called, here's the four titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful counselor. We all know that the decisions of leaders can make or break a nation. And if you watch the news, you're often sitting there wringing your hands and thinking, why are they doing this? Please, oh, no, they're going to do it. How much conflict comes about because of the folly of rulers? But unlike foolish leaders, this child will give wise counsel. This phrase literally means a supernatural counselor, one who gives supernatural advice. He's unfailing in the depth of his wisdom. There's something wonderful about his insight, his wisdom. It's beyond the merely human. He rules with a divine insight and authority. Wonderful counselor. Secondly, mighty God. Now here we get into the realms of great mystery. It's clear that this is a child who is born and is a human. And yet here, Isaiah calls him God. 
The amazing thing about this phrase is that everywhere else it's used in the Bible, mighty God means God himself. So who is this? Now, many people struggle to put this together. How can Isaiah be talking about an obviously human child and then yet call him mighty God at the same time? And at this stage in history, it's a mystery. But the picture of the child is filling out, isn't it? He will have great wisdom and he'll have the power, the might of God. Power so great that he can deal with all the conflict and injustice of this world. Those first two names give us a glimpse of what kind of leader we would need to guarantee that war would be over. One who was wonderful in their wisdom and insight. One who had the power of God. And then there's a third title, Everlasting Father. Now in the ancient world, many kings would claim to be the father to their people. But their fatherhood was always self-serving and selfish. In Israel, they knew that the king wasn't normally referred to as father. They knew that the Jews knew that the father of their nation was God himself. And God was a good father, concerned for the helpless, caring for the people, providing, protecting for the alien, the stranger, the widow, the orphan. Now Isaiah says, the rule of this child is described like a father. A good father. In other words, the child's rule is like that of God himself. And like God, his rule lasts forever. He is the everlasting father. And if you think about it, that would have to be the case, wouldn't it? This is what history teaches. After a good king or queen rules for a while, they die and a new ruler rises up and almost invariably starts a whole new series of conflicts. For peace to endure, the ruler would have to be everlasting. Fourthly, he is the prince of peace. This is the climactic title. It really sums the others up. What sort of ruler is the child? Is the prince of peace. He comes in peace. He establishes peace. Now in the Bible, the Old Testament, peace is a very rich word. It's the word in the Hebrew language, shalom. A very rich word. Old Testament scholar John Oswald says, the English word peace only partially reflects the meaning of shalom. This word involves putting back together what has been divided. Thus it speaks much more than just the absence of hostilities. This peace, shalom, means wholeness. Putting back together. It means well-being and health. It means goodwill and harmony. It means fulfillment, freedom from anxiety. We might say it's a peace that summarizes the world we all want. And to this day, many Jewish people will greet each other with the words, peace to you. Shalom Aleichem. Your Muslim neighbors and friends say, Salam Aleikum, same thing, peace to you. Don't we all want to live in peace? Don't we want to live in a world where governments provide justice, where home is secure, where relationships are happy, harmonious, where we're free from anxiety about the future, where we enjoy health and well-being, a world where you can sleep at night? I want to live in that kind of world. And Isaiah tells me that I can because of a child. 
He says it's absolutely certain, so certain that he could speak of the future as if it had happened already. So we've seen a picture of peace, light coming in the darkness, joy flourishing. And we've seen the Prince of Peace and his fourfold title and what a marvelous, mysterious person he is. But we're going to finish with some thoughts about the price of peace. Just a few reflections as we come into this Christmas season. We're left here with this simple question. Who is this child? This person who strangely combines very human and yet completely divine qualities in one. This wonderful counselor who is mighty God, an everlasting father king and a prince of peace, who is born to us, who is a child given to us. Now the amazing thing about all this is Isaiah didn't know the answer. Until his dying day, he wished he could know. He gets close at times. Chapter 7, he says, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and will call his name God with us. That's pretty good. Getting warm. <laughs> Chapter 52 and 53 of Isaiah gets really close with the description of a man who is despised and rejected, who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, who was pierced for our sins, who was killed along with wicked men and buried in a rich man's grave, yet being offered for sin. After being offered for sin, he would see many people come to him. Isaiah gets really close, but that's as close as he ever got. Many years later, the Apostle Peter wrote these words about Jesus. He said this, 1 Peter 1, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ was in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to those prophets that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Isaiah didn't know who this child was, but Peter did, and so do you. So do you. He was born to a teenage mother who was a virgin when she conceived. An angel appeared to his mother's fiancé to explain this difficult situation, and he quoted this very verse. They will call him Emmanuel, God with us. He lived a normal, fully human life until the age of 30, except for one significant thing. He never, ever sinned. He was never even selfish. His own family confirmed it. He was a child of peace, an adolescent of peace, a man of peace. At the age of 30, he began a public ministry of preaching and teaching of healing and restoring. He was able to do things that only God could do. We call them miracles. His mighty deeds proved his divine nature but they did something more. They demonstrated his kingdom. He was, in fact, the Prince of Peace. His name is Jesus. Now remember, peace in the Bible involves not just 
end of fighting, but putting back together what had been divided, wholeness, uh, well-being, health, goodwill. Peace means the world we all want and long for. And Jesus Christ gave us a window into that world by his life, his character, his relationships, his teaching, his great deeds. But we, we still haven't figured out yet what the price of peace is. Every conflict that ever ended, someone had to pay a price to repair the damage or to end the hostilities. And that means there's one more thing that needs to be said. And because no message on the life and work of Jesus Christ would be complete without turning finally to the cross, to his death, the cruel cross, which is the climax to all four Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They devote an inordinate amount of time and space to the cross. It's what he himself said he had come to do was to die. It's the key to understanding Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 New Testament letter says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace. How? Through his blood shed on the cross. That was the price of peace, friends. Was Jesus' blood shed on the cross for you and me. And through that blood, he will not just bring back to himself individuals here, but a great people that no one could number from all around the world, from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. We're just seeing a little taste of it today with the multinational church here. And maybe this is just the beginning of thousands of years of Jesus gathering a people to himself. And even more than that, it says he will reconcile to himself all things, even the tired and weary world. Even the creation, even the creation is waiting for Jesus to come back because then he will make all things new and all things right and there will be peace. That was the price. Paul continues in Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. You see, the way we get peace personally, individually, is not by working really, really hard. It's not by trying to change and turn over a new leaf, make some New Year's resolutions. It's by accepting a gift, a free gift from God. To us, a child is given. He comes to you in weakness as a baby, as a gift. And God says, you know, you, you can't reconcile this world to yourself by your own efforts. You can't be reconciled with God. Your own sins have pushed you far away. You're in deep gloom and darkness. But Jesus comes as a gift. He's given. Accept him. Stop fighting. Stop trying to prove yourself. Lay down your deeds accept the forgiveness that only Jesus can give. And this is how peace comes to earth, one person at a time. John Oswalt, that scholar who I quoted earlier, finishes his reflections on this text with these wonderful words. 
this child born of the virgin is the son of David, but he is also the son of God. The bulk of his ministry was in Galilee, but he was enthroned on a cross in Jerusalem by taking into himself the sin and oppression, the horror and tragedy of this world, he was able to give back righteousness and freedom, hope and fulfillment. The significance of this passage of scripture for us comes down to this, listen to this. Have we allowed the child king to take over the government of our lives? Have we allowed the child king to take over the government of our lives? Only then can we know the benefits of God with us. We cannot have the light, the honor, the joy, the abundance, the integration that he offers any other way. As we come into Christmas, let me ask you that question. Have you allowed the child king, Jesus, to take over the governance of your life? And if not, will you do it now as we pray? Let's come to him in prayer.